I'll eat you. I've just seen a face I can't forget the time or place where we just met. She's just a girl for me, and I want all the world to see we've met. It'd been another day I might have looked the other way And I'd have never been aware But as it is, I'll dream of her tonight la, da, 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 da. Falling, yes I'm falling Do you really want to fuck with this? Tom, still? Tom. <laughs> Are you sure you don't want to do this one by yourself? Uh, no, but you did. We are doing a review of part 14, and this time last year or whenever it first aired, you did the entire podcast by yourself. So, no, I don't. I think I, I honor you for doing that. It's very valiant, but I don't want to repeat that disaster. So. I was actually going to just be silent for like a minute and just make you <laughs> jump in and start recording on your own, hosting on your own, but yeah, that would be just too, uh, 
too cruel. So I decided not to do that. But thanks. That experience for everyone, our first, I think during the whole run, the whole 18 parts, we did not edit, we did not edit any of our content. It was just whatever came out of our mouths. That's what uh, is up there. We did it live. Uh, so we, d- we we did it live. We did it live. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that particular weekend, part fourteen, your daughter was in town, and we were having all ki- all kinds of issues. And I remember, oh, yeah, I was at Universal Studios, Harry Potter Land. That's oh, right. That's very nice. Well, I was driving to work to try to use my work computer and then it wasn't working there. And then I came back home to try. I finally got it figured out at like at three o'clock in the morning and I had to do like five takes. So I, one time I got like 35 minutes into it. This is how stupid I am. I, I, I flubbed and I had to start over from scratch. So by the end, like six o'clock in the morning, I was like Harvey Firestein, my voice. And, <laughs> uh, and, but it was done and we posted, it was fine. But uh, yeah, memory, trip down memory lane. Well, it was good, he did a good job. And that was a great episode. So I'm excited to watch it for the first time with you. So any introductory thoughts? We are like the dreamer. Yeah, this is the, one of the best ones. Really, this one is, I think probably, if it's not top five, it's right on the edge of top five. There's really only four real segments in in this particular episode. And what's interesting, I think like part 12, Cooper or Mr. C, Kyle McLaughlin, is nowhere really to be found other than a flashback or a dream sequence. So uh, that's very interesting as well. But chock full of goodness and we've got some good theories and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, to discussing the show with you, my friend. All right, well, we're queued up at right after the Rancho Rosa logo. Are you ready to do this? No, I want to... No, not one thing before we get started. Uh, first, a little disclaimer. Since we do... We do... I mean, there was a lot of research that went into uh, this particular episode. Not for me. <laughs> <laughs> you. Well, that's just... Uh, that's just par for the course, my friend. You're the research guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that is. That's why I like to throw little curveballs your way uh, in the middle of the show. Just I know, thanks say, a lot for that. Yeah, you're welcome. This one probably won't be as scene-specific because we have a lot to talk about. We'll try, but uh, we're going to talk about some big stuff in the show uh, specific to the, the the Monica Bellucci dream and the whole Jack Rabbit's, uh, Jack Rabbit's Palace section. Sarah Palmer taking her face off. And Sarah taking her face off. And, oi, I got a green glove, mate. Oi. So, yeah, all right. Well, on that note. Oh, also, one other thing. Just <laughs> I keep trying to start it. You're like, not quite yet, buddy. I'm ribbing you, too, from the whole thing. Like, yeah, having to do this by myself. Oh, yeah. It was torture for you. I, I... It was pure hell. Pure hell. And I, I can't even listen. Not that I listen to the old episodes anyways, but I would never, ever in a million years listen to that one. It's cringeworthy. It's excruciating. You're like Hard Harry, Christian Slater, and uh, Pump Up the Volume out there in the desert. <laughs> I'm not that yeah. cool, my friend. No. No. no Samantha Mathis on my hip either. You didn't take a breath either. That was one thing. No pause. It was one, it was one 56-minute run-on sentence. One, yeah. Not even an ellipse. <laughs> Okay, so we did the Wild at Heart last time. I'm not going to go over like the 18 things that I forgot to talk about. But one of the things I did want to mention was, you know, that classic, iconic uh, Lynch YouTube video where he talks about watching uh, movies on your telephone and how it's a fucking sadness or whatever, which is hilarious. It's got like millions of views Mm -hmm. on YouTube or whatever. But um, I wonder what he thinks about watching his movies, Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart specifically, that were shot in widescreen on like VHS pan and scan because that's what we watched for years and years. Well, he hates it. What, that's the only thing that we had available to watch. Remember like the old days, like Marty Scorsese, when he came on TCM, he was kind of introducing us to the whole letterbox thing and the pan and scan. And I think Lynch was 
at, uh, you know, out against that. But uh, doesn't it seem like now you just, you see less widescreen movies on like platforms? Like, are we going back to pan and scan? No, they're just fitting it to your. You know what I'm saying? You never see that letterbox. Well, they fit. They fit to your your TV. Well, we miss them. Though we miss some screen there, right? The screen. Our screen's not exactly the size of a letterbox, even though even our they look kind of like close to it, but not quite. Are we missing anything? from like Lawrence of Arabia or whatever, widescreen? It's a good question. I don't know. I don't have the technological uh, savvy, but I think that now that whatever the aspect ratio is, it's fit, it fits to your particular screen. Back in the day when we were first watching movies like Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart, um, like the scene, like just like the driving scene with Sailor and Lula, you wouldn't see both of them in the frame. You'd see like Sailor and then you'd see this pan over to Lula when she taught. It wasn't what Lynch intended. And it wasn't until... I saw both movies in the theater because uh, I think I saw them before the DVDs that I, and it, uh, that I got to see Lynch's true vision. And it was really like a new experience. And that holds true for any number of films. Because growing up in the 80s, it's, if you shot in widescreen, you, when you watched on TV at home, you saw Pain and Scan. And it sucks. It, it just it does suck. It's a fucking sadness. It's a, such a sadness that you think you've seen a film on your fucking telephone. Get real. All right. Well, on that note, let's do it. We're going to hit play. We're at the Rancho Rosa Logabai. So one of the first things in this particular episode is in Buckhorn. Very, I think one of the more uh, comical Lucy scenes with Cole calling. Just great comedic timing. There's some great pauses in there. Great little reunion. I love it. Yeah, it's a great reunion. Like his voice and her voice. We, we, we remember that from the original series, them talking to each other. So it's a great nostalgia bit. One of the first things is Diane coming into... Well, wait, you're jumping ahead, Tom. We're looking at the musical composed by and the opening credits. I don't even... I got to visualize this. Well, I'm giving you a little uh, preamble here because it's one of the first scenes that that, (laughs) that, uh, occurs in this particular episode. And it's the whole thing where uh, she doesn't want to talk about that night because Cole asks her about Major Briggs and it leads into the whole Janie E as her sister and how they're estranged and that was like a big wow and in the ring with love uh, that uh, that was found in Major Briggs' stomach. But what I want to talk about briefly here is, and this is one of the things that um, I found, I discovered some something on Reddit where, so, where someone was discussing all this Diane and Janie E and the ring stuff or whatever. And this guy, I'm assuming it was a guy, posited that Janie E back in wherever it was, the early aughts, late 90s, whenever it was, did not was not wooed and did not marry Dougie Jones, the Dougie Jones that we saw in part three. She was wooed and married Mr. C posing as a Douglas Jones <laughs> in Las Vegas. And uh, now you'd say, okay, kind of crazy, whatever, but it does make a lot of sense because he has this these, these ties to Las Vegas with like Duncan Todd. Janie E worked at a bank, so maybe he could use her as an influence to like launder some money, what have you. And mm. he's playing the long con with knowing that he's going to create a Dougie Tulpa down the road because of what's going to happen 25 years later, not being sucked back up into the lodge. And Diane is, since that was the half sister that that was, that's what facilitated it. And that there was this maybe triangle between the three of them and Mr. C chose to go with Janie E for his long con game. And that's what caused that original rift with Mr. C and her rift with her sister. And then and then he disappeared with that car crash. Because remember, 
uh, Bushnell says to the Fusco brothers that uh, well, Dougie ninety four yeah did he like was not always right when he uh, you know he was in a car accident but I looked up that line he was in a car accident before he started working at Lucky Seven so before Bushnell ever met him um, he was already a little bit off so I think what happened was is Mister C staged that car accident that's where he he had the Tulpa Dougie and then he took off and then that's where. Dougie was established with Janie E, and then he wound up siring Sunny Jam, and then he took off into you know, to Rio or Brazil. Or yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, it had to be you know he he created Dougie to be a distraction or a, a tulpa, so it could he had he could have very well included Janie E's wooing as a part of the process. And do you think there could have been like a double date situation, like in Mrs. Doubtfire, where he had to like run into the bathroom <laughs> and change from Mr. C into Dougie on you know, two different dates? That could have been hilarious. I like to see that. No, but uh, <laughs> it does kind of make sense because why would Janie E? Fall for this yeah. really dim-witted, yeah, gambling, alcoholic uh, uh, philanderer that she would have fallen for the bad boy, Mr. C, who probably wasn't as, I mean, he was bad, but he probably wasn't as Bob with the long hair. He wasn't in the leather maybe just quite yet. No, I'm suit. <laughs> and the whole triangle with, with Diane, not knowing what's going on. It's just all very, I think, interesting, and it was something that I'd never even considered, and it ties in with at least the scant information that we do get, is that he wanted, Mr. C wanted Dougie in some safe uh, setting for an extended period of time, knowing eventually he was going to have to use him to be sucked into the lodge, and, and Cooper would have to take his place. And it's some kind of mad, long con genius game that actually makes a lot of sense to me makes total sense and don't you think a lot of people that get married they think that i mean secretly that their husbands and wives suddenly get turned into a tulpa boring tulpa have to get married anyway (laughs) it kind of makes sense that is it could be some social commentary on marital malaise yeah Yeah, it is social commentary i like it shout out to that guy we should give that guy a shout out if we ever i never come across anything even suggesting that and i think i like it and i'm gonna run with it well, here we are with uh, Krista Bell talking to Albert. They're talking about Lois Duffy, the whole Blue Rose backstory. What do you think of this scene? Case one, the Lois Duffy. Exposition dump. <laughs> we spend 14 minutes, the first 14 minutes of this show in Buckhorn, primarily in this hotel room. They waited 14 episodes to finally give us this exposition, finally. This is key. <laughs> it's compelling. Even though it's a massive exposition dump, it's, it's really kind of bridged by or it's held together by the Monica Bellucci dream, which which ties into or which actually brings Fire Walk with Me back into the narrative because we've only had a little you know kernel here and there um, with the blue rose or the ring, but with Cole seeing himself back in the Philadelphia offices and Jeffries and the Cooper, the who do you think this is there? I think it. it is, is the first kind of the impetus of what is going to ultimately transpire or at least climax with part 17 with Cooper going back and saving her. And this is really kind of the impetus. So the Monica Bellucci dream. Wait, before we start and talk about the window, window wiper here quick for one second. Oh yeah, go ahead. Well, what the fuck's going on here? Like, what is this window wiper? I think he could be like a, a, a woodsman. He's coming in to fuck with his head. He's, he's, he's piercing through. He's right there uh, between the dimensions. He's just kind of, because no one, I mean, that looked like a, a paranormal uh, window wiper. What do you think? Well, yeah, he was going at it like double time, right? Like, yeah. and uh, yeah, I didn't see a beard outline though. <laughs> no, I just think it's a little aside, a little comedic moment, just like the Lucy scene breaking up uh, the the heavy exposition dump. So it was just a joke, but it was kind of disconcerting. It disconcerted, like uh, I thought it felt like it showed like uh, Orton Cole that like they're still watching, they're right there. 
because I think she's about to she's about to show her colors, right, Diane? Right. And so it's like they're right they're right there. I think Judy and even with all these machines, the machinery in the room, Cole uh, is very suspicious of kind of delegating or revealing, I should say, certain bits of information because I think of what he knows. He's been in the FBI and, and on the Blue Rose case, leading the Blue Rose hunt for decades. So I think he's savvy that with the, and we'll get into this because this is one of the big things we're going to talk about is the the origins of the Blue Rose and how it pertains to Twin Peaks and other areas. Um, the, uh, the, the, the electricity, the means of electricity, the means of like whoever these spirits are to coal and the Blue Rose and how they are seemingly omnipresent or using electricity, whether to travel or to eavesdrop or what have you. Um, and I think he's very cautious about that. And he, we've got some hints with him, with the bug, remember the Tammy bug earlier and, and scanning the room before Diane came. So I think he is, I think maybe you're right. Maybe there is something that even though that squeegee person might not have been a woodsman or a Judy acolyte that it plays into the theme of being very uh, aware of your surroundings before revealing too much information. Yeah. So do you, sorry, I interrupted your blue rose uh, analysis because we get a lot of, you got a good theory about this whole thing. I think you tied it all together nicely. So continue, sir. Well, it's going to, it's going to unfold. Yeah. We've got about another 50 minutes of show, whatever, uh, but here's the, the Diane scene and she plays this great. I love her little bit where they ask her about, Janie E, like, when's the last time you saw her? And I think she says... We're estranged. We're estranged. And then she turns away and she goes, actually, I hate her. Just the way that she says that. I mean, she's just... She was so rock solid. Um, she's great. Overall in this series. But I just love that little little bit here. But the one thing about this scene that we didn't talk about, we talked on the whole Mr. C and the Dougie thing, is that the major breaks. Um, that's what Cole wanted to know, is if, he, if Mr. C had mentioned... Major Briggs to Diane. She didn't want to talk about it, and then she admits that yes, but then it kind of dies other than going into the ring. But I think we alluded to this earlier is that Major Briggs, even though his body is 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 dead, his head lives on, but he is he is omnipresent. I think he's hovering over a lot of these events um, all over uh, uh, the 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 geography of, of the, the season three narrative, because when Cooper in part 17 uh, pretty much gives his little exposition dump in, in Truman's office, basically says that the reason why they're there at that particular moment and the shit went down the way that it did is because of Briggs. So even though we can't put all the Briggs pieces together, um, at least I certainly can't, um, I just feel that his presence is, 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 is omnipresent, that he's always there on the periphery, like just off camera somewhere. Well, he man maybe he, he's the one that manifested the Dougie's ring inside his stomach as a clue. I think that's very valid. I think he's helping the two birds with the one stone. He was in it with, uh, he was in on this plane apparently during the retcon was the back in the nineties that Cole and Briggs and Cooper were in on this plan to take down Judy. And so he's helping out still, even though he's dead, he's a part of the team dropping clues. I, I agree. I think there is some kind of confederacy with, uh, with obviously with Briggs and uh, Cooper and Cole, but with Jeffries as well. Um, but the whole thing with Judy, that plan that you just mentioned, that plan predates, or at least maybe not that plan, but Judy, the presence of Judy predates that plan because Cole even admits that Jeffries was on to Judy before he even disappeared. And I think, I suspect that and this will go into the whole Blue Rose thing, is that um, the Jowde, whether it was Jowde or Judy, is that that was well known, or at least in theory, known to Cole um, or the Blue Rose, the Blue Book, going back to the 50s. I think that 
aspect kind of always existed, that there was an extreme negative force. They just couldn't ascribe a a person to it. And I still don't think you can ascribe a person to it. We call Sarah Judy. Jaude. Well, Jaude, but... Uh, um, <laughs> it's a Mesopotamian god. <laughs> but what's interesting is that the Blue Rose cases, right? So what I want to talk about is the... the the first and foremost, the first Blue Rose case we got was Fire Walk With Me, you know, a Deer Meadow, right? Teresa Banks. Teresa. So how was that a Blue Rose case? Uh, because it was, uh, we've talked about this. You want to give it away? Because I already know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, no, it was a mysterious. Yeah. Basically, it was like where uh, there's, uh, you're seeing tulpas, you're seeing otherworldly lodge entities involved in homicides and disappearances and with, with otherworldly clues going on, like Let's Rock and so forth. To anything dealing with like a supernatural element that they're they're savvy to but one thing that i didn't really put together which i think could be true especially with the events that we saw unfold in season three is that i think a blue rose case can also be uh, uh affixed to an actual like location as opposed to an actual like person or an actual crime like area 51 like area 51 and i think that that's what deer meadow was i think if you if you read the script of firewalk with me and watch the missing pieces that that little bit before irene at, at haps they talked to that guy jack remember uh who's there someone's fixing some uh or trying to break into some kind of safe well this cut scene was uh, he says that, well, the feds had actually, the FBI had actually talked to half the owner in the 50s. And it's just another little clue. I think that Deer Meadow was on the radar of Blue Book slash the Blue Rose team because the Blue Book originated in 52. And they didn't know, per se, that there was a specific person or a specific lodge entity uh, uh, you know, at that particular location. But something was off about that location. So maybe they, they had some feelers out. Maybe they had some kind of like a Carl Rod. I don't think it was Carl, but say like, you know, in season three, Carl has his, his CB to the, the Seraph station. Maybe there was some kind of uh, Ray Monroe in Deer Meadow or something that they could keep tabs on. And then when Teresa died, that set off all the, the fire alarm, whatever, to, to Cole and he sent Chet out there because he knew everything about uh, you, there's going to be a lot of legwork, the little thing, you know, there's an uncle in a federal prison, the you know, trouble higher up, all this stuff. And he's not going to get that in like, you know, six hours of information. So I think Deer Meadow was on their radar. Don't you think they could have used a phone book and just looked up every Chalfont and like, uh, you know what I'm saying, like Tremont? <laughs> One of them. <laughs> I think they're like eight steps behind yeah. with the chow fonts and who these lodge you know, entities are. But basically, to make a long story short, we'll go into more detail. But the the symbol of these communities that are Blue Rose cases is the number six electrical pole. Or just the electrical pole in general. But yeah, number six, obviously. Yeah, number six as a symbol. I mean, there's electricity everywhere. But I think Lynch is very conscious to frame certain scenes like the zone scene when they're about to go into the zone. His establishing shot is the zone framed with two electrical poles on the left and right-hand sides of the frame. I think it was very deliberate. But the number number six electrical pole we see in the uh, Deer Meadow at the Fat Trout. We see it in Twin Peaks again at that accident scene in part six. And it's related to, to Carl Raw. And we see it in Odessa. So I think each one of those locations are a, uh, a, a actual a blue rose hotspot. Yes, hotspot. I buy it. I'm into it. And they're all. We talked about this last night. Like there are small towns, right? So you were talking about how that they're the evil is like infiltrating these small towns, and then they're building out the evil. Like is people are going crazy because they're inhabited by uh, lodge entities, and that it's like a domino effect throughout the town. So that the towns are turning dark because of the lodge. 
basically what, and this is tied into the Jackrabbit's palace scene where Andy goes into the lodge and he sees all those visual clues, is that pretty much he's seeing, why would you show Andy the experiment and the woodsman and Bob and uh, uh, elect electrical wires? I mean, things that he just has no understanding of. And basically what those, I think a lot of those clues are, are given to us, the audience. And really the only things related to Andy that he's understanding is the, the double you know, Cooper, Mr. C and Cooper. Laura. And well, Laura, he, he knows that, but all of those real entities or scenes are unnatural, not natural, like the Blue Rose case, basically. And I, it, it is pretty much like a, a, a kind of a visual history of, I think, what's going on with the Trinity test, the explosion, which pretty much allowed, I think, the convenience store and the experiment to penetrate our realm to and for the experiment to vomit up all the what we call the Judy eggs. And then we see in part eight, one Judy egg, and we see the woodsmen uh, are attracted to these Judy eggs. And it goes into the little girl. Was there a number six uh, back then? Also in episode eight? We, did we see one? No. no should have no, been no, one, right? No, no. That could have been the original one. I agree. And there should be one in Buckhorn as well, which I think is a ties into what I'm talking about. But I think since there was innumerable. And Vegas. <laughs> no, Vegas is different. And New York, Philadelphia. <laughs> just keep on naming towns. I'm just thinking of all the different places. Well, places where lodge happening or what, where otherworldly, like places where there could be, you know, like portals. You know what I'm saying? Okay, that's what I'm, I'm leading to. I think you're, you're right. Is I think that the 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 eggs which were innumerable that were spewed out, and we just saw the one. I mean, Lynch isn't going to show us, you know, all these stories of these bugs infiltrating these people. But this is the this is the the one thing that's related to Twin Peaks because. It's Sarah Palmer, but I think woodsmen are attracted to the bugs, and the bugs go into the people, the Judy bugs, and there's there's any number of them spread out. And then whether they're children or adults, they live in these communities, they move, and I think that the woodsmen's or the lodge, the woodsmen, the lodge spirits are attracted like these beacons to uh, these 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 uh, children of Judy. And they settle in these communities, so to speak, and they suck up whatever the garment bozee, if you want to say that, and the town, whatever it became, whatever light it had, turns dark. It becomes very cancerous. And I think that's why Deer Meadow, we always thought was the anti-Twin Peaks, but I think it was because of the number six electrical pole, the shit that was going down there. You had the, the sentries of the Chalfonts there watching it, and Bob was there as Leland killing Leland, and God know, or killing Teresa, and God knows what else, and... I think we're seeing that in Twin Peaks now with Sarah is that, that the darkness is attracted. Whatever is within the Palmer house within her is this hub of evil, this extreme negative force that's cascading out of the town. And I think it's happening all over. And I think that's why the convenience store can, as a TARDIS can go anywhere. It's going wherever the action is. And I think it's spreading through the electrical poles. You think? You know, they travel by electricity. Yeah. They travel yeah. by electricity. So that's it. So I think that's what this chess game is between the firemen in Zhao Day is that that's what the evil is doing is sucking up all this darkness and spreading throughout the world. And I think that at certain hot spots like Twin Peaks and Buckhorn, there are like hubs, you know, where they're able to set up shops. But I think that's pretty much the, the not the end game, but the major game of what is going on, at least thematically, with the good and the evil in season three. Yeah, it's like a chess board. They're playing chess. And so there's good like pieces and bad pieces. And there's a big black uh, evil piece of uh, lodge chip on top of Buckhorn and on top of Twin Peaks and other cities, probably Vegas. Vegas is a little bit different because I think that one doesn't have that darkness to it. It's more of kind of like Cooper's dream state. Dream state, yeah. What I want to talk about, even though we just missed it, because this isn't going to be really a scene-specific 
uh, podcast is the Monica Bellucci dream. The whole ancient phrase is it's tied into this is the, we are like the dreamer who dreams and then lives inside the dream. And then, but, but who is the dreamer? So we've talked about this and we've kind of, we believe that, you know, the Cooper is dreaming the whole Vegas thing, or at least it's a manufactured dreamscape. And then he penetrates Laura's dream in part 18. But like, what about all these other missing, all these uh, other fluid pieces, like Ben Buckhorn and... Lynch is the dreamer. He's the <laughs> ultimate dreamer. Well, no, I think that 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 Cooper is the dreamer. He is dreaming. But what we're seeing with Cole, with Cole and Albert and Tammy and even the people in Vegas, they these are real people. Um, and they are just experiencing... A lucid dreamer Cooper and they're he is affecting their lives when coming into contact yeah but if you take the ancient phrase we are like the dreamer who dreams and substitute Cooper's name in there like we are like Cooper who dreams and then lives inside the dream but who is the dreamer but who is Cooper it ties into who is that Cole man is, yeah exactly I get it it ties into what Cole is trying to get at and trying to wrap his head around with these two Coopers because he goes into the fire walk with a fire walk would be seen because uh, because that's what what happens is that Bellucci looks past him. She gets like an uneasy feeling or he gets an uneasy feeling and he looks back and he sees himself. So he actually sees the dreamer T Cooper talking in the past about a dream that he had. So there's the, the dreamer, dreamer right there. Yeah, evidence. Yeah. And then you see Jeffries who comes in and says, we live inside a dream. And he also said, well, he doesn't say that there, but he eventually says it. We all know that he says it, but he says, who do you think that is there? Which is, who is the dreamer? Who is Cooper? Which one is Cooper? Who am I dealing with? So it really does tie into that whole Monica Bellucci dream. It ties into Cooper being a dreamer, not the dreamer of the whole season three or whatever. But that's what I love about it so much is that it not only ties together thematically of a Cooper's journey, but it ties together what Cole's The Blue Rose is trying to grapple with is what is going on here. Because remember um, Laura Palmer, the scene where he saw her, he opened the door yes. and he saw Laura's crying face. I and recall he, that. And, what episode and, was that? 13? 12? <laughs> You're just 11? making up numbers now. It was 10. It was 10. <laughs> All right, I believe 10. it was 10. Yeah. But so he didn't really understand it, right? So... Um, and we really never got a callback to it, but I think what what that is doing is is that it's 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 a clue to Cole, who is one of these gifted detectives, who is part of the Blue Rose. It's a, one of these clues, whether uh, internal that he's seeing it, you know, through his mind's eye, or if Laura's actually projecting, or the fireman is, or what have you. That all roads, your 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 Blue Rose case, it's leading to Twin Peaks. That's what it is. That was the first clue. Now the Monica Bellucci thing, that's the like second clue. And then we have all these other subsequent clues until finally he figures out in part 17, hey, Sheriff Station, Twin Peaks, he'll go there. So that's it. it Do you think Major it, Briggs could have inspired his dream, his Monica Bellucci dream, to give him a clue? To let him know that like Cooper's out there. Like they're looking for Cooper. Where is he? Well, he's in the Lodge dream. He's trapped in this dream, dream world that's just a thin layer from where... You know, you can you can get to it if you go to the zone or Jackrabbit's Palace. Like it could have been a another little little pebble that uh, Major Briggs left for because he needed to wake up. He needed to get that connection. Remember, and they all need to remember, right? Everyone started to remember stuff. Like it's like a, it was a trigger. It was a trigger of the past because doesn't Cole and Albert both say like, "Oh well, uh, yeah, I remember that." Now. Yeah, so 
Now, what does that connote to you? Does that connote that, okay, it was just 25 years, uh, I forgot that part of it, or... What was the part that they forgot again? That uh, uh, Jeffries pointed at Cooper and said, who do you think this is? Oh, there? yeah, yeah. So what is... Well, they, I think they just forgot. <laughs> but why did... Why was Cole... <laughs> I mean, even though it was the dream he had the previous night, he is able to say it verbatim. He knows everything. I mean, when I have a dream, I'll get like bits and pieces. I'm not able to tell a narrative of what happens because I think well, that this was a dreamer, Tom. <laughs> well, this was more than just a dream. I think that maybe as you suggest, whether it was uh, Briggs or maybe the fireman or something, this was more than just a regular dream. And I think maybe a Monica Bellucci dream is maybe like a code to Albert and Tammy's not too savvy yet because she's just being initiate, initiated into the Blue Rose, that this is like a coded dream message um, that he's he's receiving. And it's, well, he either pulled it out of the ether or the lodge gave it to him somehow that he was tapping into the giant or whatever, or maybe Major Briggs, or maybe it was uh, even uh, Philip Jeffries. Well, but don't you think the reason why they're staying in Buckhorn, because we, we, we've, uh, we've kind of grappled with this. Maybe he's waiting for the dream. Well, I think that they think that at least Cole, who's, He's in charge. He's the director. That the Blue Road, their Blue Rose case that they're investigating, it, the hub is in Buckhorn. I and mean, because all signs point to supernatural elements in Buckhorn, they had the whole Cooper that Mr. C, who they don't know, was. Shouldn't there be a number six pulled by the zone? Well, that's what I was. One? Yeah, that's what I look. I, I agree. We didn't see it, but I think that is the insinuation is that. So let me finish this thought here is that. They're staying in Buckhorn because I think that's where they think the end game is going to go down. They've got their machines set up. They got Diane, who they know isn't really Diane. Cole is waiting for Cooper. He says in part 17, he's waiting for something to go down. So I think they're just holding fort uh, because there's the zone. There's the whole Hastings thing. There's Briggs. There's the ring. There's all these things going on. So that's why they're staying here in, in Buckhorn. But it's kind of a MacGuffin. It's actually Twin Peaks. But... If you think about what I was talking about earlier about like the Judy bugs and you know them cascading or being you know released all over the world or maybe North America who knows and no the world the world the world yeah. there's there's Buenos Aires there's a there's obviously a hot spot in London oi <laughs> Buenos Aires Bu- Buenos Aires right mm-hmm. but Buckhorn has all the tells of you know the Deer Meadow the Twin Peaks and and Odessa and I think that the one thing I thought about was like Phyllis, you know, Hastings' wife. Didn't she glitch out when Mr. C shot her? Yeah, well, she did a, yeah, it was that little swizzle thing when she got shot through the eye. It was a weird glitch, kind of like when Tammy did the, the doorknob and the, we've seen a few of those. So, yeah, yeah, she did. I think maybe she was, Tulpa. maybe she was like, maybe, yeah, maybe or, or maybe she has a buck because she didn't disappear into the lodge. It seems like if you're a Tulpa and you die, now we only saw Dougie and Diane. Maybe she's doppel. Uh, that or, or doppel. Maybe Hastings got too close to the zone, and they had to they had to doppel his wife to keep tabs on him. Or maybe she was an existing tulpa, and that because Mister C has this this foresight, you know, this long game or whatever, is that she got with uh, Hastings, knowing or at least was maybe ordered like Diane. Because I think that Phyllis is kind of like in the Diane mold of this Confederate who is doing Mr. C's work for him, but there's still some resistance because they have their own identities or whatever. But what I'm saying is that I think Buckhorn has all the signs. We don't see the number six electrical pole, but lodge activity of supernatural activity, of Blue Rose activity going on in the town. It's just not where the end game is. I believe it. 
Are we done talking about Buckhorn? <laughs> <laughs> I could go on about Buckhorn. I'm watching Andy in the Lodge right now. It's amazing, Tom. You were, this is what you were describing earlier, is that if you, it's like the PowerPoint presentation for what is going on, and you had described it a little bit earlier, but uh, I think it's fantastic. Watching it again, I've not seen it in like however long it's been. It's great. I'm amazed. Andy in the Lodge is fucking amazing. And what a choice. Andy in the fucking Lodge. Like, why? Is the, he's, I mean, that was just a, it was a fantastic. And obviously, it kind of it deals to the end game because it seems like we're seeing now that he presents Lucy at the very end to kill Mr. C, right? That, that, that he push her in front, like, to, or inspire her, give her the gun. Is that, was, that his, was that his mission here? And then also Nido's presence here. Finally, Nido comes down from the other realm and he's seeing all that. Well, there's a couple of interesting things. Okay, so. First of all, why was Andy chosen? There's the six pole, and it ends with the six pole. Three times, by the way. Three six poles. So what does that mean? Odessa, Buckhorn, Twin Peaks? Odessa, Possibly. Deer Meadow, Twin Peaks. Yeah. No, I think it's, I don't think that Deer Meadow doesn't play a part in season Hey, two. Tom, you know what three six poles spell? Six, six, six. Rant, rant, rant. Satan. Okay, first of all, let's talk about why Andy was plucked, was chosen by the firemen to receive those messages. He's the holy fool. He's the holy fool, and he's there to actually help uh, capture Mister C. Okay, and he get there, and he's getting enlightened. He's now he would be de- in like you know, biblical or like old old historic times. He would be like a saint or something. He'd sit on the mountaintop and eat like an olive leaf a day <laughs> and give wisdom, be a soothsayer, because he's just been enlightened and disappeared. So it's probably happened all over the you know through the beginning of time. Like he was perfect to be a holy man. Well, I don't think that he actually. Uh, delivered on those uh, visual clues like 100%. Well, he's Andy. He fucked it up. Yeah, I think he did that. fuck it up uh, because... Was he donuts? Was he, what was he doing? Well, no. Watch part 17. Like He, he brings watched. Nido out, though. That's one thing he does. He brings Nido out. Okay, okay. First and foremost, um, I think the reason why he was chosen was because he was the one that was actually attending to uh, Nido. He was holding her tightly and she was holding him very tightly in fact she didn't want to seemingly want to let him go and then when he saw the vortex he let go stood um and and was sucked up in and met the fireman but what the curious thing about this whole scene is nato being presumably diane or at least that's what was revealed in part 17 why was she left out in front of this vortex if she was very important and people want to kill her, and why wasn't she sucked up into the White Lodge and the firemen, given a blanket, you know, hot cup of tea, and, uh, and and attended to there? Because she's Diane. She's supposed to be, she's going to have to turn into Diane here. That's the reason she's been dropped down, to put in the cell, to be there at 17, to turn into Diane. It was a part of the process. It was like, the, the uh, did the, the giant, uh, the firemen send her down to take down Mr. C? She didn't, t- she didn't do anything. Well, she was, I think she was a part of it. I think she had to be there chirping around, like, to, to let it all happen. I think she was a part of the, like, basically, like, all those people had to be in that cell at that time, you know, saying for the confluence events, for the stars to align. I think she had to be there. And it makes sense because she's Diane. The message was, or at least that's what Andy communicated, was people are trying, or people want her dead. She's very important. A, who wants her dead? Woodsman. <laughs> but they were there resuscitating Mr. C. They could have gone after her and eaten her head like Hastings and they didn't do it. I think it's a ruse. I do you don't think, think it's really Judy? It's a trap? I don't think she is who she appears to be. Well, I think there was a reason why she was not plucked by the firemen. I think that she was there to meet with Mr. C who winds up at that particular point. And I think that the firemen brought 
uh, Andy in to, uh, or at least that message that Briggs, because this all started with Briggs, with this is the chair and two, five, three. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, we talked about this a long time ago. So, so they put, he, Andy was there because the giant wanted her stopped not to meet Mr. C to do evil. And that, that's why he, she put her in jail to keep her from Mr. C. And he was coming to the probably coming to get her. When he was, that's where who's coming to get her, Mister C, probably. I I think that very well may be true, and I think that maybe if she is some kind of harbinger of evil or a darkness, a Judy, what have you. I don't think she is Judy, but I, I don't think she is Diane. I, I just that just doesn't really sit well with me. Is that maybe the fireman like he can't or he won't like aid in her in her destiny somehow, but through a, def, a different set of events. Um, Briggs and the firemen set up that whole message for the true men, the the new Bookhouse boys, to show up there and to take her away, to put her into the cell. And it was ultimately, it was up to Cooper to figure out who this person is, whether or not to trust her, because that's really what this is all about, is Cooper's journey. I mean, season three, or Cooper's identity, I mean, is all about Cooper. Fire Walk With Me was all about Laura. Season one and season two were, were about the town of Twin Peaks. So really, it's ultimately up to Cooper is decide what role does NATO slash Diane play in this narrative and whether or not he can or cannot trust her. And I think it's proven in part 18 that she cannot be trusted because she, she checks out. That's it. Yeah, and she kind of serves the purpose when she turns into Diane, like Lil Diane in seventeen, when he, you know, she reveals herself that she walks him down the hallway back into the freaking lodge. Right. You know what I'm saying? So she's kind of keeping him in the dream. Yeah. Goes comes out for five minutes, goes right back in. Goes right back in because of her. Right. I I agree. So there's something with those moments, but the whole thing with Andy and his visual clues. You know, when we saw him with Lucy. And, you know, he, he was pushing her, like, into that spot. Like, she's not holding a gun. And then he takes off. Like, why is Andy involving Lucy with this? Like, he goes down to the jail cell, but he's, like, what is he doing? He's, I mean, no one's attacking NATO there. Why can't Andy, like, pull the trigger? He's the one who's been given the clue that there are two Coopers and that, you know, to save Truman, you know, from Coop, Mr. C's bullet. It, it But... It, I don't think, and if you watch his reactions in part 17, it's like, it's not unfolding like he thinks it's unfolding. Like, there's something off. There's something not right about that. It would have been really predictable, though, if we knew in 14 that Andy, you know what I'm saying, if Andy was the one that inevitably shot Mr. C in 17, it would have been very, you know, we'd have been like, oh, we saw that coming. That's true. Yeah, yeah that is true. Yeah. yeah. But it's just still like, why isn't she holding a gun in that scene? I mean, because it would, it would have spoiled it. That we would, you know what I'm saying? That we would have known that, like, this is, you know, it would have been too much of a, a spoiler. But isn't that, I, I agree with you, but isn't what he's seeing uh, a future event, like yeah. a predestined event? Well, he knows that what he's supposed to do is there's a predestined event. Basically, when he wears that, when, she, when Lucy wears that sweater and it feels like that moment, he needs to push her forward to do something, to do something within the, you know, the, the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station. And he doesn't know what it is yet, but obviously we don't know off camera. Maybe he did, right? Or was he down? Yeah, we don't know what happened because she just shows up, right, and shoots him. In 17. But it just seems like the insinuation is that Lucy, Lucy finally figured out this whole thing with the cellular phones because Cooper was on the phone and, and Cooper, who she thought was in the office, and that sent, uh, you know, sent alarm bells within her. And then she went to the office and shot him. Or did Andy give her the heads up? Hey, there's two Coopers. And at this particular moment, here's this gun, wink, wink, because... I don't really think that he actually set her up there. Well, maybe Lucy took took her the hero's journey on her, on her own. It didn't need to be enlightened and just did it. You know what I'm saying? It's I like that. 
Andy was like out to lunch. He had a shaky hand. It's been 25 years since he shot Jacques. <laughs> oh, speaking of this sh- shaky hand, which is very interesting, is that this whole thing with like electricity, right? And because that's, I mean, it's a lynch motif. I've heard of that. <laughs> but electricity, yeah. How the lodge spirits <laughs> travel, and maybe if this number six electrical pole, you know, it being a symbol, the hub of, you know, within a certain community of the the darkness that you know, permeates throughout and whole visits the zone right uh there's that one scene post at the the buckhorn sheriff station and isn't like he's hand shaking and he's like cat on a hot tin roof and uh yeah remember those scenes in season two towards the end where everyone's hands started shaking mysteriously yes. um th- the thing with like electricity like within our bodies like if you get like a surge of uh of electricity it can affect the the way that the nerves are communicating with each other and cause excuse me and cause your muscles to contract. So the the Cole, I think, with his experience in the zone, uh, even though we didn't see the number six electrical pole, I think got a surge of electricity, and that's why his hand was shaking. And I think that explains his hair. <laughs> and I think like in Twin Peaks, where the number six electrical pole probably didn't exist there in 1989, the original series, but with the events of The Lodge and with Laura's murder, I think it it did somehow at some point appear. Remember what the log lady said to Hawk before she died? That, uh, I think it was, that the electricity is humming. It's in the rivers and the wind and the glow and, and, and it's in the moon and all this stuff. But she says, but now the glow is dying. And what will be in the darkness that remains? So it's it kind of plays into this whole thing with electricity equals lodge spirits and a malignancy on your location. If you've got a number six electrical pole going on here, it's sucking up all the light, all the goodness in that town uh, that we saw in the original series 25 years ago is you know turned malignant, turned cancerous. And she's saying that the glow is dying. And, and her, the soul, Margaret, the log lady, the soul of Twin Peaks, her, she, her physical body is dying. And, and she even tells us, well, when it's all done, when all the juice is sucked up. Talented to go solar, man. <laughs> and the, the glow is dying and there's only darkness. What will remain? Just nothing. The void. <laughs> Troy the Pony on the astral plane. <laughs> what I'm trying to do is tie in the Blue Rose, what their their end game is, what they're trying to. They're not just like, oh, there's a weird doppelganger. There's a weird situation or a weird murder. Maybe there's some supernatural. I think this is a chess game. They're on the human level, not understanding all the pieces and gathering data over years. And you have the firemen and Jaude, Judy, who are on the ethereal supernatural level, manipulating everyone. But the special players on the board are maybe more the higher end, the kings, the queens, the knights, the bishops. And you and I, my friend, are just the pawns. Well, yeah, what, what chance does the Cole have when he's playing chess against uh, Judy who could take her face off and move around? I mean, it's, uh, I understand. It's like mortal <laughs> versus a uh, god. So maybe you have to have a lot of pawns. You know what I'm saying? Like plant a lot of pawns. The fireman plants a lot of pawns, just like uh, Mr. Glove Guy here we're watching, and uh, or the Polish accountant, or Cooper, or Andy, or Lucy. Because a million pawns could take down a couple of cosmic queens and kings. Do you think perhaps, that Rusty from the original series is a pawn? 
Who's Rusty again? Hey, man, you promised me beer. Yes, he actually was a literal <laughs> pawn. He was a literal pawn. <laughs> he is exactly right, Tom. He's a literal pawn. It ties yeah. into and it. So basically, Wendell Merle was trying to play evil chess with them back then, and he failed and got eaten. But now Cole's playing it here with the white ships, right. trying to take him down. And uh, yeah, I guess he won. Guess, <laughs> not really. Well, was Wyndham Earl an actual uh, member of the Blue Rose team? Or did he go rogue? Yes. Right? He was, right? For I guess maybe he I know he did Blue Book, right? But he didn't get name dropped. Oh, yeah. With I thought Blue Book and Blue Rose were kind of synonymous. It is. Like one's like the street team and one's the like scientific team back Area 51 or something. I think it just morphed. I think it used to have like other code names like Gemini and whatever. And then it just morphed into Blue Book and then and then in reality and then it became the Blue Rose case. But I think it's assumed that Earl had something to do with it. So don't you think there's a hair of Wyndham Earl in Mr. C? Uh, no. No. <laughs> Not even one here. Remember that case that he had in part uh, part two, was it? You know, his uh, his suitcase? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, okay. Similar? Well, he killed him. The theory was that maybe he killed him in the final episode when he came out and he found Leo in the whole area. He took it. Or he, t- he took the thing when Leo was tied up because Leo got killed. Bob took Wyndham's soul and maybe Wyndham's soul was somehow assimilated. Absorbed a little bit. With Bob. And then if Bob became part of, you know, Cooper's doppelganger, that maybe there's a hair of Wyndham Earl in there. Did Wyndham Earl play a flute or a lute at any point in the original series? <laughs> in his jammies. Yeah, he did. Yeah. So that's what I would like to have seen is uh, Mr. C playing a lute in the flute in his jammies. And I would have known. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Okay. So how long has Freddie had that glove on his hand? I don't know, but it stinks, dude. I've had a cast on my arm from breaking my arm. That thing must really smell. Lots of mildew in there. He's probably had it on for years. Six months. Six months? He says it. All right. Six months, yeah. yeah. So he's only had it for six months. So he had that experience. So there's a portal in East End. I think that's what he said. East End, London, right? Because mm-hmm. that's where he's from. Oi. Yeah. And oi. And this is just set up, right? This is exposition. Or it's actually not exposition. He tells a long story. Um, it's set up for the events that go down in part 17. But on this watch, the rewatch last night, I uh, actually enjoyed his, uh, his little monologue, his little tale. I always liked it. I like him. I like the scene. I like the idea, the theory. It's good. It's pure soul. It's a sleeper cell. Been activated. I move car is the Polish accountant. Yeah, Polish accountant. I think he's you know, one of the same. One of the Confederates, the acolytes of, of, the, of the firemen. They're like pawns that, that are given a special power for one, one uh, duty. And they may die, but uh, that's like they get a little, it's like they're superheroes. They get a little special power. Just like that Uzi probably was a cosmic Uzi that never ran out of bullets. Do you think uh, Tracy, Madeline Zima, in part one, because she had that Z motif as well. She worked at a Z coffee shop and the Z coffee. Do you think that she was like like someone like Freddie and uh, and the Polish economy? She could have been. She could have been on the good side or the bad side. I'm not sure what side, but yeah. The- well, she was sacrificed, though. That's what you see the, the other side of it is that Freddie probably becomes a hero. There's probably a statue of Freddy in Twin Peaks, like the statue outside of Lucky 7 now, for, oi, killing Bob. The Polish accountant's probably doing like 5 to 10 in a federal penitentiary. No, he just walked into the desert and disappeared. <laughs> no, he oh, no, he raised his hands, right. Down. No, but yeah. you know he was in the back of the car and he just disappeared. They're like, where'd he go? He's gone. And wouldn't it be weird if he disappeared and all the bullets disappeared, so they're all just dead, but there's no, no wounds, or there's wounds but no bullets? It could have been a crazy scene. We never saw how it ended for the Polish accountant. I saw a brief interview with Tim Roth. He gave this great description of his death scene um, in part 16 that Lynch, his only direction to him was Elvis Ragdoll. That was it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I like that. It was the perfect direction. He's doing that Elvis move, kind of like doing the Elvis, like, yeah, I get it. Her, who comes up with that? Jeez, little dance. That's great. Yeah. He just had the visual in his mind. Yeah. 
like it. Did you find it interesting? Here we are with uh, James investigating the mysterious hum, the great northern furnace room that both James and Bobby, juvenile delinquents, both uh, they both have a badge here. Both are in a badge. Yeah, but Bobby's badge is way better than his badge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, James is a little uh, little off. I guess it's the motorcycle accident from the final dossier. Of course, we didn't get that in season three, but... Um, <laughs> he definitely had a motorcycle accident. Yeah, there, he's sure. just, uh, just... Even his interaction with uh, with Freddie, just smiling, he just... He's just, he's a little bit off. I feel kind of a little sad for him. It's like, you know, he reminds me, he reminds me of Sonny from the last picture show. Like after all the shit that went down at the very end, yeah. like lost his brother and Cloris Leachman has to kind of console him at the end. He's kind of like a, kind of, Timothy a, Bottoms. Like, kind of like a, a lost soul a little bit. Yeah. Timothy Bottoms. Yeah. If he was a little bit smarter, he could have actually been one of the sleeper cells, but he had to be just like the friend of the sleeper cell. <laughs> well, and what does he really do here? He just, I mean, we just see he walks up to the, the door, but do we see him go in? What is he? He's exp- inspecting, but what is his purpose here? We don't ever see any payoff of the scene, right? Other than all that we do is see the, the, the foreshadowing of the, you know, the, the little portal down there. It's all, but we don't know what it is. Does he leave? Do you think he opens the door? I think it's set up for part 17. I don't think he opens the door. I think it's his birthday, and I think he's ready to go to the roadhouse and woo uh, the married Renee. Uh, Renee. But uh, I think it's just set up. So when we see part 17 with Cole Cooper and Diane, we know exactly where they are and... Uh, you know, the source of the hum. I think it's just a, just a, the slow reveal of that particular little C storyline. Uh, we now know where the source of it is. It's in the furnace room. We're watching Sarah walk into the bar. I didn't notice that she was smoking. This is the first time I've actually noticed she was smoking on the way in. Puts it out. Yeah, you know what? I remember like reading... Really fucked up scene, dude. <laughs> I remember reading... Uh, I think it was when the production was going on. I was getting some weird tidbits here and there where people were on location and uh, someone was watching the scene and they were saying how Lynch was very adamant is that he wanted Sarah to appear out of the darkness, which she does. But the only thing that he wanted to see was her cigarette. Um, and it reminded me of Rear Window. Remember Lars Thorwald, that great shot mm-hmm. after... And the burbs. And the oh, the, with uh, Bruce Dern. <laughs> yeah, Bruce Dern. <laughs> We've been watching the Burbs on Shutter, like, or at least I have, like, repeatedly. I hadn't seen I it do. forever. I love Klopak and the classic line. Sardine. <laughs> <laughs> you just tell everybody in high school that I look like that guy. <laughs> yes, because you damn me, you, Tom. You so. called me uh, Vinny Del Pino from uh, Doogie Howser and Arvid from Head of the Class. So Arvid get, from Head yeah, of the Class as yeah. well, and Jay Leno for some reason. I thought you had a Jay Leno chin. Here is the greatest, one of the greatest top five scenes in uh, the entire series. I think this, the Sarah Palmer taking her face off was like one of the biggest shocks. And obviously, it makes sense, like all the stuff we've been seeing. But uh, dude, this is fucking fantastic. Did you now? I know because you scream when you saw it. Did you like? Did I, I yelled out loud. I, I I yelped when this happened. I don't remember, but I think I might have spoiled this because you didn't watch this that same day because your daughter was in town. Uh, yeah, we were at, like I said, we were at uh, Universal Studios. And then, so I ended up watching, I put her to bed and ended up watching it like one in the morning with the sound down. And I think you did already spoil the fact that Sarah took her face off. I think you had already tweeted that or something, but uh, I was still surprised. I still loved it. It was really uh, an unexpected moment. I don't think, I mean, we knew something was off with Sarah, but here she is leaving her house. I mean, she's been, every scene we've seen of her has been in the house, smoking, drinking, watching TV. There's some kind of weird loop going on. Now she leaves and I was expecting her to meet up with maybe Red or someone, but she's just going out to have a drink and to smoke in public. And And hunt, yeah. With yeah. Uh, and then the truck you guy, when if you notice his shirt, his that font on that shirt was 
It's a David Lynch font. It's his handwriting. So it just goes every little detail. Doesn't matter how small. He is so hands on, and I, I just love that about him. Did they sell the Truckee shirts at the Twin Peaks store? Like they could have been the brand. So. <laughs> no, but didn't we meet him at the festival? Yeah, he's a nice guy. I think he had. Did he have the Truckee shirt on? Oh yeah, he yeah, was in full character. I yeah, he was in full yeah. character. Yeah, he very was. Nice man. Yeah, yeah very nice nothing guy. like this character. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, no, this, this is like Emmy worthy. Awesome. Uh, this is like Emmy worthy acting right here. This scene right here is just so fantastic. Like she really, she's terrifying, but also you feel terrible for her. You feel like she's been. Uh, it's it's like because of the abuse that like the Judy bug gestated even bigger, you know what I mean, and makes her even more powerful. Like, do you think she just goes stays in the house and then goes out and hunts, gets drunk, comes back into the house? That's all she's doing. <laughs> like, she doesn't go to the PTA meetings or go to any. She's not doing anything other than this, probably, right? No, I I agree, and she's very polite in her own way, even though she says she's not being polite. Like, go please return to your seat, and there's just this menace of her and. I mean, she winds up removing her face and, and removing you know a large chunk of flesh from his neck. But my question to you is, in this scene, and pretty much overall, who who did evil better? Leland, Ray Wise, or Sarah Grace Zabriskie? Sarah, well, Bob, if we saw Bob. I mean, but Leland, like, when you saw the shots of Leland, it was, I mean, it was terrifying, but it wasn't as terrifying as this, obviously. So Judy rules. I think Judy rules Bob. I agree. I mean, even though Ray Wise did an incredible job, I just think... When he went off the rails, I think it was more of a, a scarier performance when you didn't know if Bob was in him or not. Once he went full Bob, it was almost a little cartoony, even though he did a great job. This is on par of one of the most disturbing scenes yes. oh my God, in all of is. Twin Peaks and one of the best performances. <laughs> yeah, great CGI, just great, just fantastic. Oh, my God. Holy shit. I'm ter- and I love that reaction shot when she leans back after getting him in the neck and just looking at him on the ground. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Yeah, she God, immediately, she yeah. goes into, okay, uh, victim mode. Like, oh, yeah. I don't know what happened. And then she does that. She has a great line at the end. Remember that line to Hawk? Mm-hmm. And she has something similar here where she goes, sure is a mystery. Because sure the bartender's haven't, yeah. he's confused. And he thinks, like, what, did you do something? And, yeah, do you uh, think that the police even investigated this? Like, I've never heard anything <laughs> about it. Maybe and also, talk- have this been going on? Like, have people been losing necks around town for the last 25 years? And they just kind of haven't figured that out? There's a serial killer hmm. going on? Good question. But you know what? I think it would be a good uh, a crime for that uh, mysterious CSI team that we saw briefly in one of the early episodes. Oh, yeah. What were they doing? Yeah, they've probably been following this case the whole time. But maybe because they were ki- she was killing only bad dudes that no one gave a fuck about that they let her to keep, continue on. Right. You know but this isn't this part of the, the kind of the Deer Meadow feel. Of, yes. Because we didn't get this in the original series. I mean, there was... No. This guy, he was calling her profane names, and, and he... I mean, no one really, I think, deserves to die, but in, in the world of, of, of Twin Peaks and, and this you know, narrative that is not real, uh, he certainly just deserts here. And uh, you, you kind of root for Sarah a little bit. And uh, it, it just, yeah, it's all just, the misogyny that's gone on in this series, you know what I'm saying? She's like an Avenger. She's finally striking back. Oh, that's, that's a great point. It's a really good point. Okay, so um, Roadhouse scene. This is my favorite random conversation. I love this Roadhouse scene. Well, why do you in love it? In my so own much? room. I love her. Uh, well, I think that the actor, the acting's fantastic. It's very mysterious, mysterious and evocative, and I like this actress. That's uh, that's, that's opposite of Lynch here. I wish there, she had been in more scenes, but I wanted to know where the fuck she was. Like, what the hell's going on? Like, this is the one scene in the Roadhouse that actually gives you some backstory, and it's compelling and interesting. The other ones are almost nonsensical. You know, you can't figure out what the fuck's happening. But well, this one had a lot of allure to me, and I still can't figure it out. 
Episodes. Except for I know Billy's the guy in the jail cell drooling all over himself. No, That's it, no, Tom. I don't, yeah. A lot That'd of people believe that. I don't. <laughs> I don't think so. But You've been arguing about this for a year and a half. You're right. This conversation really, for the first time, I think, connects some of the dots. And it's really kind of connected to Audrey's storyline because the uncle. the uncle. But here's the thing is that the uncle, she mentions the uncle twice and she can't remember whether or not the uncle was there, even though she remembers all these other details of the other people that were there, like her mother and what she was doing and and everything that Billy was doing. And the whole thing with the uncle reminds me of, uh, there's multiple uncle references in uh, the first part of uh, Twin Peaks, the prologue. Carl Rod says that Teresa Banks' trailer is more popular than Uncle's Day in a Whorehouse. And then when we were at the Twin Peaks Fest, (laughs) remember before the screening of Eraserhead, Sabrina Sutherland got up and said, hey, I just wanted to let you know I got a message from uh, David. He said, oh, yeah, uh, here's a little clue. The clue was something like, like, who is the uncle? Watch for the uncle. The uncle is someone important. So who is the uncle? Well, I think he was the, some sort of lodge entity. I'm not sure we ever saw him. But even like the bug, remember the, in, the one when uh, the bug girl was in the car with the woman who was screaming when the shots were fired out? She was also going to see the uncle. Like oh, the that's having right. A birthday yeah. party. Yeah. Yeah. So he's obviously like an odd, a lodge entity possibly. And they don't remember because that's what happens. You get fogged up whenever, you know, the, the Philip Jeffries or some sort of lodge entity infiltrates your house. And sometimes or, you can't remember exactly what happened. Just like, like Or like uh, the Blue Rose case, this is an unnatural event that, that we are in yes. the roadhouse where. It's an unnatural uncle. <laughs> but these scenes in the roadhouse, I, I, I don't think are, 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 are real. Yeah, They're, we've talked about that. I think you're right. I think that the uncle, I think this kind of is really, it's tied to Audrey. So, okay, so what do we know about a Blue Rose case? A Blue Rose case is, is supernatural. One of the aspects of it is a doppelganger or a tulpa. What we see with Audrey and her plight and her conversation with, uh, with Charlie is mentioning all these characters that these people at the Roadhouse are also name-dropping and trying to find this Billy. So when Audrey winds up going to the Roadhouse and d- doing the Audrey dance and we see the music playing backwards and ultimately the reveal of where Audrey really is and who she really is, and she is somewhere else looking at a mirror in a white room. So all of these scenes, all of these conversations, I think, are some kind of projection like in her mind, this is like Audrey is if, if Twin Peaks itself is not a Blue Rose case, Audrey, I think, is a Blue Rose case. She's one of them. Maybe this is like a tulpa bar. It's like slowly taking they're all doppels. <laughs> well, from the original series, yeah. there were owls in the roadhouse. The giant showed up at the roadhouse uh, multiple times. You know, no. Yeah. Well, we talked about how that the convenience store could have tarnished on it right on top of the roadhouse at one point. It's possible. Think, the giant's been there. You have lots of activity yeah. there. I think that's the, when the ring came back. What do you mean the, the ring world? came back? Didn't didn't the ring drop whenever Leland was exposed in like season two when they all gathered at the roadhouse? The gum you like is about to come back in style. Did the ring come back at that point? Like Cooper yeah. get his ring back? Cooper's ring, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's Cooper ring. Yeah, so there's the, the, the yeah. roadhouse has there's some supernatural aspect to the roadhouse. And I think that instead of seeing the fireman and actually seeing this otherworldly deity, that in the subsequent 25 years, the town has slowly gone to shit. And I think that there are a lot of unnatural happenings in town and a lot of what the fuck moments. Like you mentioned the one with Bobby outside of the, the double R diner. I mean, that's a classic, like what is really going on in this town? What is really real? I mean, some people posit that it's Laura's dream or it's Cooper's dream. I mean, I think that what we're seeing in twin peaks is, is real. It's just being affected or influenced 
by these dark elements, namely the convenience store and that one under Blue Pine Mountain, Judy. Maybe it also has something to do with the retcon. Yeah, we don't really talk about that. I mean, that's a very good point. We suspect that when we watch the show, we're dealing with one timeline and that there there might be a subtle shift in around part seven. And then we that's why everyone's getting kind of fuzzy. But do you think it's possible that the beginning of the show, the very beginning of the season, that we're already dealing with multiple timelines and it's actually doing the opposite. It's actually merging to the one timeline, the official version, if you want to call it, where Cooper goes back in time and saves Laura. Is that possible? Well, we're seeing the Dougie thing, and I know we've talked about that ad infinitum, but uh, that that being a dream timeline, merging with the real timeline. But it is possible. We've talked about that, but we've never been able to parse out exactly where the retcon occurred and if we are watching multiple timelines. But we've It's been a very interesting concept, but I haven't been able to nail it down with math. I've been waiting for you to do it, Tom. <laughs> I'm lazy. <laughs> okay, so with this episode being entitled... We are like the dreamer and with not seeing Cooper or Mr. C in this show. And the only time we see Cooper in the show is in Cole's dream. And when Andy is with the fireman and seeing these visual clues, which is, is in itself some kind of otherworldly realm that maybe that in itself is a clue that parts of the show, other than even Vegas are a manifestation whether it's Cooper or Laura, or like we were just said, like Audrey, that um, not everything, it's not like a Dallas episode or a Dynasty episode where Bobby wakes up, uh, you know, in the shower and like season three through eight, like didn't happen. I think that, like I said earlier, all these people that we're seeing in all these different locations are, are real. It's just that they are being affected by like lucid dreaming, so to speak, these lucid dreamers. And I think it's a prime. Maybe the dream world is infecting. They're slowly infiltrating their life. Like 14 it's titled. We are like the dreamer, right? So Cooper is never in this episode. So everyone in this episode is the collective. We, we are like the dreamer. That's not in this episode. So maybe that's it. Cause every, is it all four of these little mini stories that we see in this episode? Aren't they all kind of like lodge related? Like there's not, are there any just straight storylines? Uh, no, there, and that's a very good point. It seems like this episode, other than maybe part it's all eight, is, it's got this self-containment. It really has like this one theme, which you just pretty much summed up perfectly. We are like the dreamer, the name of the episode, because all of the segments, the four segments, really tie together with that. Because even Freddie and, and, and his part, he mentions that... Uh, that you know, he got sucked up in the portal like we saw with Andy. But yeah. like Hastings, who mentioned in part two when he was talking to Phyllis, when he was in the zone, that he didn't kill Ruth. He like he was there, but he woke up in his bed. Freddie says the same thing. He saw the fireman. He was given all that information, but he didn't plop down in the alley where he, he was sucked up. He was back in his room. So it does it does tie in together. They don't remember. They almost go into a dream state, like a, a reverie state, and when they have to achieve their mission, and they don't remember it if it's sarah even on the other side of it you know the dark side there's the the andy lucy uh glove boy sarah they're all like they're, they are on a mission they've got missions and when they're when they're in it and they're being inhabited that they don't remember it when they come out of it like don't you think like sarah whenever she uh you know kills the guy and then she's like start screaming do you think like she snapped out of it that somehow she was sarah then because it didn't seem like that it seemed like she knew what was going on because she had that little comment at the end like oh yeah it's a real mystery 
You know, I think you're exactly right. I don't think it was Leland Bob, like in, in the early seasons. Like, yeah. there were moments where, like, I think Leland even said, like, so was when he was in, I couldn't remember. And when he, or when he was in, I didn't know what was going on. And when he was gone, I couldn't remember. I think she knows exactly what she happened. remembers. Well, yeah, you could even tell just with Hawk at this event. Like, she's just pissed. She knows she's a chew toy for Judy. She can't escape. She can't escape. But she knows it. That's even more of a hell to know it. Be conscious of your hell. Well, with all these things that we're talking about, the summary of the Blue Rose cases and and really this the investigation from the Blue Rose team being stuck in Buckhorn, thinking that is where the action is going to go down. But it's really everything, all, all roads lead to Twin Peaks. We knew that as an audience, with, whether it's the coordinates or Cooper's journey, um, we were going to wind up in Twin Peaks. But or the name of the show. <laughs> you had that great line. It's like when I was talking about Buckhorn, the, the Buckhorn scenes should have been taking place in, in Twin Peaks. You really you had the great line. It's like, well, they didn't call the show Buckhorn, Tom. That's right. There's a reason. We knew it was going to end in Twin Peaks. But it does. the fact that, that Sarah Palmer uh, is now revealed to be the, the, the mother of I think all of this evil, the mother of the mother, I think, as you suggested. Um, and with what we saw in the first two seasons with Leland being host to Bob, the father, and Laura being the one, and really her the show or the theme being Laura's trauma at the hands of, of this otherworldly spirit, now we have Sarah, uh, the other half of her, of her you know, parental units, is inhabited by a spirit that are we seeing... A, an alternate timeline or are we seeing something that always existed and is now being revealed and only gives even more weight to to Laura's trauma of what she uh, was exposed to as a child because maybe we didn't see the scenes of Sarah acting crazy if she was yeah it's the big discussion did the retcon uh, make Sarah or did was Sarah inhabited by Judy during the entire original run and has always been that's what we can't figure out but uh we never, I don't know. I, I really don't know that answer. I don't think we're supposed to know. There's a, I did a couple of, I did a tweet of uh, uh, four images of Sarah. I think, I can't remember what the, the line was I used, but I found two shots of Sarah where she looks absolutely evil. And one is where... Just two? <laughs> two that are subtle. <laughs> two that are not iconic. And one is when she's with Leland and, um, and, and, uh, and Sarah... Maddie is remember like the day before she died they're all sipping coffee and reading the paper sitting yeah on the sofa mm -hmm. and there's a, and the camera slowly tracking what a wonderful world yeah across the uh, the record player and you see just there's one shot of the record player and Sarah and she's looking up and she has this a bob face basically it's it's kind of a long shot you got to zoom it's it's Ooh. and it's it's interesting because it's got the record player like listen to the sound you should tweet that. This is a tweet. I did. You should pay attention to my tweets. <laughs> oh, you did? Okay. <laughs> I don't pay attention. There's too many. Yeah. And then there's another one where after, I think it's the one where Leland had already killed Maddie. She shows up at the top of the staircase and she just says, calls Leland. But she has this a look that we're seeing in, in season three. So I think a lot of this was created over the years and not initiated. The mythology wasn't set in stone right from the very beginning. I mean, it's fluid. Uh, no. But... I think that there's enough evidence <laughs> no that uh, Sarah was more than just complicit uh, unwillingly or unknowingly to Leland's activities is that there was a darkness within Sarah. And I think maybe they, they just, as, as Lynch and Frost, maybe they were intending to do this in season three back in 1991, but they picked this thing up here 25 years later and was like, dang, this is where the progression was going to, you know, always intended to go. 
Yeah, maybe she had the Sarah bug in her. Obviously, she kind of had the Sarah bug in her all, all the time, even during the original run before the retcon. But maybe it was gestating the whole time. And that, like, uh, it, after Le- like Leland somehow drew it out of her, like, through the suffering. And that, that now in season three, whether it's the retcon or it's just the evolution of her, that now Judy is in full bloom because he's gone. She's able to run the show. But then you would think if she was, like, that she'd be doing more. And she's in Sarah. She could find another host. Cause more havoc. Well, really, what's inside of, of, of Sarah is, I think, the jumping man, more of a, like a bob, like demon, and not, we, we ascribe Judy because it's a bug that, you know, Judy vomited up. And, and she's a woman. Uh, and she's a woman. But the jumping man, since we didn't get him in Firewalk With Me, is maybe what was within Sarah wasn't strong enough to go up against what was inside of Leland Bob. And, you know, you would see subtle things within her because she had this darkness, and only when Leland you know, died and over the years and there wasn't the influence of Bob in her house that the Judy bug, this jumpy man within her was able to gestate or to become stronger. And that's why, you know, the shit that we're seeing in season three now is that there's nothing to deter uh, what's within her. There's no, because don't you think that Bob wanted all the Garmin Bozia, all the pain and suffering that he was causing of Laura for himself and didn't want to share it with anyone? Yeah, he didn't want like the jumpy man to jump in there or Judy or anybody <laughs> to suck it, suck it all from himself. Right. And it makes sense. I mean, the way she 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 goes for the neck and the little needle that she'd said, it seems like it is the jumpy man entity within her. But the only reason why I thought it was Judy was that it was in 17 when she started, when the, when the retcon happened and you cut back to her and she was screeching and screeching and then she went and smashed the uh, the photo of Laura and that felt like that was a pure Judy move rebelling against the retcon we've talked about this for a million times right. but, uh, yeah but it could be both it doesn't really it, you know they're all entities of Judy essentially right they're all demons that, that do her bidding so I agree either way yeah. it's I, not good no, it? <laughs> no I agree and I think that is the, the, the theme of at least this particular show what we tried to elaborate on these Blue Rose cases, all these, whether, whether it's tulpas, whatever supernatural element, I think that the constant is this extreme negative force, but I also think it's a red herring. It's not a particular person, and it's, it's, it's different. Each person is different. Like what I think each bug, each egg had a different entity within it. And uh, we're only seeing certain entities because of, of however the mythology is unfolding in, in the first two seasons, Fire Walk With Me, and here in season three. So um, I was going to think that how many uh, Judy bugs are at Mar-a-Lago right now? <laughs> well, I think if uh, Mark Frost had his say, I think he would say that the whole lot. It's like the end of that movie Society. I think they're all... Uh, <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> oh, my God. I don't want to think of that. Like, <laughs> Don't you think that's what's going down in Mar-a-Lago is the ending of the movie Society? Yeah. Yeah, I can oh, see that. God. Go ch- check that horror movie out if you want to get an insider view of Mar-a-Lago. On that note, <laughs> any final uh, thoughts, my friend? Um, <laughs> we talked about the whole uh, triangle with uh, with Janie E and uh, Mr. C and Diane, which is an interesting development. Oh yeah, my theory was that like he is like kind of like the Warren Beatty of the Lodge. Like he goes around seducing to get the women to be his do his bidding. Like, Dougie could never do it, but it makes sense that Mr. C could. It could have been with Phyllis as well. It could seem like they had a relationship with Diane, with Janie, with numerous others. He uses good looks. Chantal. His good looks. Yeah, yeah. to get Chantal, all of them. That's the devil, the good-looking devil. Literally. He's spreading his seed. Yeah. He's the Black Lodge Lothario. He is. And uh, if you've seen that, if anyone's seen the movie uh, Shampoo, I won't repeat it here, but there's a line that Warren Beatty says at the end, which would be very accurate. I fucked oh. them all. <laughs> For evil. On that note. On that note. All right. Well. <laughs> Until that time, thanks for tuning in.